Today on Maine Calling, President Jimmy Carter's legacy. As President Carter receives hospice care, many of us are reflecting on his presidency, his life, and his impact here in Maine. Carter not only campaigned in Maine, but also visited Bangor as president. He signed one of the most consequential pieces of legislation for the state, the 1980 Indian Claims Settlement Act, and the solar panels he installed on the White House, now grace buildings at Unity College. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we discuss Carter's life and impact. We'll speak with people who knew President Carter, worked for him, and a historian who studies presidential leadership. And we also want to hear from you. Did Carter influence you personally? What do you believe his legacy will be? Main Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. As former President Jimmy Carter receives hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia, people all over the world have been taking stock of what his life of leadership and service has meant. Today, we will discuss the impact President Carter had on the nation and on Maine. Joining me today, David Hales, former president of the College of the Atlantic and longtime diplomat who started his career working for the Carter campaign. He also served in the Carter administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Interior. Andrew Rudolevich is with us. He is Chair of the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College. And Harold Patius, an attorney and founding partner of Preddy Flaherty, who has served in many top federal positions over the decades and was chair of the Democratic Party in Maine when Jimmy Carter visited more than once back in the 1970s. We invite you to join the conversation, share your recollections of President Carter. Send an email, a brief email, please, to talk at mainepublic.org. Post a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. Thank you all for joining us today. Harold Patience, somebody might say, well, Jimmy Carter was from Georgia. That's a long way from Maine. Maine wasn't that important to him, was it? But during his campaign and during his presidency, Maine was important to Jimmy Carter, wasn't it? Yes, because um, we had a Democratic governor at the time, Kenneth Curtis, and he and Jimmy Carter, of course, uh, served at the same time as governors. They were very close friends. In fact, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter said Ken Curtis was his best friend among all the other governors in the United States. So in 76, when he decided to run for president, because he was a Southerner, uh, he came to Maine, stayed at Ken Curtis's house, and campaigned, Ken campaigned with him across uh, Maine and among the Democrats uh, in the lead up to uh, the caucuses here in Maine. And in fact, I remember that. It was the first time I met this Southern governor, but Ken asked me to come over to his house for dinner that night with Carter. And the uh, first time I got to meet this 
Southerner. Uh, I certainly didn't think he was going to be nominated and become president, but we had a very nice time. What What are your recollections of your first visit? Uh, what struck you about Jimmy Carter the first time you met him, Harold? I'll be honest with you, I don't remember. I, <laughs> I, I was there, we had dinner, uh, but uh, I, I don't have a recollection of that other than being there and he was there and Ken Curtis was there and a couple and a few other uh, friends of Ken. Well, David Hales, do you remember the first time you met Jimmy Carter? Oh, vividly. Um, he uh, came to a governor's prayer breakfast in the state of Oklahoma. And I was a kind of middle ranking, lower middle ranking bureaucrat in the state park system. But because I had a mutual friend who had been in Jack Carter's wedding, got invited to this prayer breakfast. And, and Jack Carter, his son. Jack Carter's his, his oldest son. And um, when Jimmy was introduced, he um, went to the, the podium and uh, looked around the room quietly for a second and then looked at the governor of Oklahoma and said, well, there must be some mistake here. Um, you told me this was a, a prayer breakfast for the leadership of Oklahoma, but as I look around the room, I don't see any black faces and I don't see any women. Uh, so there must be a mistake. This can't be the leadership of Oklahoma. And I fell in love with him at that point. Uh, there was just uh, the, 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 the directness of his challenge to a governor, uh, but uh, the implied statement of his commitment uh, to civil rights was just apparent. And one thing led to another, and I ended up being one of the uh, first field coordinators hired by the campaign. Mm, and, and tell me what that was like when you, Harold Pacious said he didn't think Jimmy Carter had any chance of winning the presidency. And, and what about you? When you joined the campaign, did you think he had a chance of winning? You know, it didn't matter much. Um, I knew he should. Uh, and, and just, as I said, I'd fallen in love with this guy. Um, he came to a flying back from the Trilateral Commission uh, in 1974. Uh, he stopped and, and we met at a motel uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in uh, the middle of the night with uh, uh, 10 or 12 other folks from around the state. Um, and uh, he held forth uh, for two or three hours in a uh, question and answer session, which um, was one of the most amazing intellectual tours de force that I've ever witnessed. Um, he, he was far better, uh, Harold, in small groups than he was uh, in large groups. But at that point, nobody thought he had a chance. He, he, he had zero recognition um uh his his poll uh in, in the polls uh we were uh certainly uh somewhere less than one percent uh of support um and uh it, that was that was a very common reaction when i first went in to organize michigan uh, i tried to organize a meeting of, of potential carter supporters and in detroit uh, i think i got seven people uh, who were willing uh, to come together and have a discussion about his chances. So it was a long shot. Um, for most of us in the campaign, we weren't in it because we thought he would win. We were in it because we thought he should win. 
Andrew Rudolevich, why don't um, I bring you into this as a historian who looks at all presidencies, characterized for people who may not have been born in 1976, how unlikely this presidency was? Well, you know, Jimmy Carter at that point uh, was a former governor, not even a sitting governor of Georgia, having served one term, been term limited out of that office. He'd been in the state Senate a few years, um, but hardly a national name and uh you know, not dramatically popular, you might say, even in Georgia after his term as governor there, but somebody who had a very uh, clear-eyed view of how the nominating process had changed. He had a clear-eyed vision of how you could become president in a fragmented nominating process. Remember, in 1968, after the kind of disastrous Democratic uh, convention in Chicago, you have a reform of the nominating process. And a lot of it is taken out of the hands of party insiders and moved to a more public primary process, right? The one we see today. So that's really the beginning of the era of the primary driven nominating process we still live in. Uh, and Carter saw that he could, you know, go state by state, uh, do some grassroots campaigning with the help of people like David uh, and beat, you know, better known candidates, Jerry Brown from California, you know, uh, Henry Scoop Jackson from the state of Washington, who was quite well known at the time, Mo Udall from Arizona. Uh, I think George Wallace, the former segregationist governor of Alabama, was running again, um, I guess it was his third time at the White House. Right. So there were some people who were pretty plausible national candidates. Remember, we're also in the uh, just sort of the tail end of the Watergate years. Uh, President Ford is not hugely popular. So there's definitely a chance for a Democrat to win here. Uh, but for Carter to come through, right, he has to be uh, able to take advantage of this new, again, fragmented system uh, by generating grassroots enthusiasm. And he's able to do that. Hmm. Well, I'm going to fast it's forward a, a little uh, bit because um, Harold Pace has mentioned that uh, Jimmy Carter came to Maine when he was campaigning for presidency and stayed with Governor Ken Curtis. But Harold, and, and I know that you you were there, um, when he became president, Jimmy Carter came back to Maine and he visited Bangor. And um, on the line with us now is Cynthia Murray. And Cynthia, when the President Carter, I understand, came to Maine, he stayed with your folks in the house you grew up in. Is that right? That is right. And we were all there for it. <laughs> How old it were was, you at uh, the time? Oh, my gosh. I would have been in my early 30s. And um, that was 45 years ago when he came back. Uh, my little brother, uh, Buddy, whose room he stayed in, sent us all. There were five of us. Uh, Murray children around still. And uh, he sent us a note a couple days ago saying it was 45 years ago tonight when we had the president sitting in our living room. It was pretty amazing. Uh, would, would you like me to tell you about some of the uh, changes that went on in the house? Yeah, yes. Tell us about it. So the, okay. I, I just want to make this all clear for our audience. The president of the United okay. States comes to visit Bangor, Maine, and he's not put up in a hotel. He's not put right. up in some fancy mansion on, um, you know, right. in Northeast Harbor. He's put up in, in your family home in Bangor. Yeah, in Buddy's bedroom, really, I understand, with the trophies. In Buddy's bedroom. Well, I don't know how many trophies were there, Jennifer. He was a freshman at BC at the time. He's now a, a Superior Court Justice in Maine. Uh, we're all still in Maine. And um, he really, uh, he got away with being called an athlete for a little while, but not 
for too long because the rest of us rib him about it constantly. Uh, well, the New York but Times we, said there were trophies, so that's, that's oh, great. Oh, I know. Well, there probably were a couple of host high school trophies, but he was a student at BC and uh, not quite uh, known for being an athlete. But anyway, he got away with that for a while. But, um, yeah, my parents, they were kind of, they, when they were looking for a place for him to stay, they were kind of wanting the typical American middle-class Democratic family. And we had, uh, we filled the bill. My dad was the city committee chairman, although I think my mom did most of the work for that. Uh, we had, um, both my brothers were, in, had been in the House and in the Senate, uh, like guess my youngest brother was not in the Senate or House till later on. He was still in school at that point. Um, and we just, uh, we were sort of, we were the, po- the choice and we were thrilled. Uh, for a couple of weeks ahead of time, uh, when we would call home, my parents knew this before the rest of us did and they had to keep it quiet. But, uh, and they did, but we, uh, our, we dialed the Bangor number. Uh, we lived uh, in the Augusta area at the time, and it would go through the White House to connect to my mom and or dad. And um, it was hilarious because she became super good with the press. I mean, one day I was there and answered the phone, and it was Dan Rather. And uh, they basically, uh, I said, Mom, it's uh, Dan Rather for you. And <laughs> she takes the phone and says, well, hi, Dan. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of for the nightly news. But um the things they did to get ready for it, it was right in the beginning of when um, smoke alarms were being put in homes. So they, on Maple Street, where my brother still lives in that home, and um, they came and put in smoke alarms, and then they took them out after he left. <laughs> they put uh, lights on the all over the neighborhood shining away from the house. Uh, I'm not sure how all the neighbors liked that. They removed all the snow, and this was in the middle of February, and the snow banks were high back then, and they had trucks in moving it and blocked the streets off, and the press was way across the street when he arrived, and uh, it was just kind of wild, you know, the, uh, the, the lights, the smoke alarms, the snow, all that kind of stuff. It was pretty strange, and I just heard the tail end of your last speaker. I don't even know who it was, but he said that um, he was much better in groups. And boy, you couldn't have said anything more true. He uh, he came in. We all sat down in the living room. Um, he noticed a sampler on the wall of my mother's, and uh, he said, "Oh, Rosalind was a Murray," which we didn't know until then. Called uh, Rosalind. Uh, we chatted for about an hour with him, and it was just about kind of very normal things. He uh, set my mother on, on a coffee table nearby, had been a Sears catalog where my dad worked, and he said, oh, we, don't, we haven't got our Sears catalog yet, <laughs> and they <laughs> talked about that. I mean, he was just such a wonderful human being, and later on, he and Mom and Dad went down to, they talked about fishing on the Penobscot and the dams. And uh, my dad went to Washington and had White House. He actually offered a ride back to my brother, Frank, who was studying theology Catholic U in D.C. That, at that time. And Frank rode back on Air Force One with them. 
<laughs> it was just an amazing experience. That's a great uh, story. This is, uh, Cynthia, this yes, is David. Cynthia, David, David Hales wants to ask you a question. You a question. Go ahead, David. Well, uh, Cynthia, I missed you, David. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is David. Um, did Jimmy make his bed the morning after he stayed there? I think that he did. And then it was funny, after he was gone, the press was around, lots of pictures and lots of questions. And one of the questions to my mother was like, well, what are you going to do with the sheets? And she kind of looked at him like he was a little <laughs> nutty. And she said, wash them. <laughs> so that was kind of how, yeah, he did make his bed. And in the morning, we were all there for breakfast. We didn't stay overnight at our home because there were a secret service sitting in the living in the kitchen all night and somebody drove through one of the barricades out front and like wow that wasn't there before and you know so it there was a lot going on we had one neighbor that had a, a big sheet with a message that wasn't all complimentary hanging down from their porch um but he took it all in in good steed so that that was that was pretty cool. Cynthia, um, I am so glad you could call in and share your experience. Um, something I think so many people don't even know about that when President Carter came to visit Maine, he stayed with your family, had dinner very and breakfast welcome. with you. Yeah. Yeah, and my mother had to tell him what was in the food, tell not Jimmy, but uh, you know, the what bakery she was using, which was Frank's bake shop on State Street and had to tell him what was going in the muffins and not them, not him, but the Secret Service. Um, so that was all. That was all pretty, pretty crazy. And then we had one child who was 17 months old, and it turned out to be that he was uh, being held by the president. And his picture was in Newsweek with Jimmy Carter the next week. So that was kind of fun. And he went on to be in politics himself. So. It was kind of a very unique experience, that's for sure. And uh, yeah, you know, we, Cynthia, we, babe, you, you should not avoid mentioning that that seventeenth month, seventeen month old child of yours, not just went on to be in politics. Uh, she, she didn't want to say this, but he served almost the entire Obama administration in the White House as one of Obama's chief aides and uh, had very big positions in the White House. And yeah, he, he started he in politics as a 17-month-old uh, <laughs> in Cynthia's parents' house. Yeah, it was, uh, it was in his blood, his DNA, I think. And so that's, uh, he was a, he's a lawyer by trade, but he uh, was practicing law in Washington. And um, he went to uh, volunteer on Congressman Ford's reelection. I mean, the president was in Bangor for... Uh, in supporting uh, Harold, I mean uh, Hathaway, uh, his reelection, and um, that's why he came to begin with. And so Emmett went to work for this congressman who did not was not reelected. But while he was there, it was before Obama had decided to uh, run for president, and Emmett was going to do it again. He had already been in two national campaigns, and and uh, but. He said at the end of the time, he was just assigned to him for a whole day, and the two of them were had their picture taken by this little tiny Pauline. And uh, he said, well, I wasn't going to do this again, sir, but if you decide to go, I'd like to be considered. And like three days, he was in Chicago, and uh, he was not only considered, he 
he went on to do great things, and and uh, he became the director of the White House military office, and he had all kinds of different jobs over the course of those eight years. Wonderful. So pretty exciting. Cynthia, yeah, thank you so great. much for calling in, Cynthia Murray. You're welcome. Yeah. You're, we do need to take a quick break. We're talking about Jimmy Carter on Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. We are talking about President Jimmy Carter and his legacy. With me today, Andrew Rudolevich with Bowdoin College's Department of Government and Legal Studies and author of several books about presidential leadership. David Hales, who is past president of the College of the Atlantic, a longtime diplomat and deputy assistant secretary of the interior in the Carter administration. And Harold Patius, an attorney, a man who has served in many federal positions over the decades and was chair of the Democratic Party in Maine when Carter was president. Uh, before we go to calls, though, I want to ask each of you if you could tell us, and, and Harold, I'm sure this week you've been thinking a lot about President Carter. What do you believe is his most important legacy? Virtue. You know, the founders of uh, our republic and uh, were educated in the classics, and uh, their, their thought about government was it required virtuous leaders. Uh, we know a little bit about that these days. And, uh, and Jimmy Carter was a reaction to Nixon. Uh, Nixon had to resign. He very likely would have been convicted in an, in an impeachment. And uh, Carter was a reaction to that. He was religious. He wanted to do the good. He wanted to do good things, and so he was a kind of a paragon of virtue. And I think that's really how we got elected. And probably he had problems uh, during his four years as president. He was not popular at the end. He lost for reelect his reelection bid. Uh, but I think the critical thing for him, and I think that the thing that stands out for me and ought to stand out for others is that he wanted to do good. Self-interest was not his only motivation, which is different than what we see in this day and age. He was interested in the public interest and he was interested in doing good. David Hales, what do you think? I think it was his commitment to human rights and the um, the emphasis that he put on human rights in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, with uh, Andrew Young as ambassador to the U.N., um, the perception of the U.S. around the world changed tremendously uh, during the Carter administration. And the, the, the essential commitment to human rights that uh, that he made necessary both domestically and and uh, and internationally um, uh, characterized and and I think was was a major uh, a major factor in uh, ending the Cold War and uh, in uh, what happened around the world for the next 20, 30 years and it made it impossible uh, for the US to ever really go back too far on that commitment even under someone like Donald Trump. And Andrew Rudolevich, President Carter's greatest legacy. Yeah, it's complicated. His, uh, the, you know, the one sentence cliche about President Carter, of course, is bad president, great ex-president. And he's been ex-president forever. Um, 
And so I think both of those are, are too simplistic, to be honest. Uh, but certainly the through line of both is his real belief in uh, being able to do good in the world, right? We've seen that with the Carter Center uh, for many years after his presidency. We saw that on the focus of uh, human rights that David talks about, uh, starting with the Camp David Accords between Egypt and Israel back at the beginning of his administration. Um, and in a way, we see that even in the failures of his presidency. He didn't like to bargain. He didn't like to cut the political deals that were often necessary to get things done. And so, you know, you could argue there's a thin line between righteous and self-righteous. And certainly in his post-presidency, he uh, was on the right side of that line, I think, most of the time. But there is a, you know, uh, that sort of inflexibility, which was also part of the strength of his character. And so that complication, I think, uh, in what, if you think back, were really complicated policy times in the 70s and beyond, uh, you know, ha have stuck through. And so, you know, this is a man who still teaches church school. Right. He's 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 committed to that. He's not performatively religious, but actually religious. And that matters, too, I think, to how we'll remember him. And and to that point, Andrew, an email from Bill. I hope we don't get through this wonderful reflection on President Carter without a discussion of his faith, his decency and desire to help his fellow man flow directly from his deep faith in God. We're going to go to Torbert calling from York. Hi, Torbert. Go ahead. Good morning, Jennifer and guest. Uh, I have another take on uh, President Carter's lasting impact. Uh, during his administration, I drew a federal paycheck working for the New England Regional Commission, which was an economic development partnership between the federal government and the New England states. And uh, people know about uh, President Carter putting solar panels on the roof of the White House, but they don't know or don't think enough about uh, what he did uh, legislatively uh, for energy policy. He had a five-part package which the Congress passed that was very far-seeing and uh, created a system of solar energy centers in one each of the 10 federal districts and uh, generally was looking stung by the OPEC oil embargo, was looking to get us off of oil. I'm not sure about how much he understood about the impending climate change, but he certainly knew that we were enthralled to the oil companies and uh, the OPEC cartel. Mm. And he, uh, he was taken down by the oil companies, really. That's who, who put uh, Ronald Reagan up and constantly worked to undercut uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, Torbert, the most underrated, most underrated president in my lifetime. Uh, David Hales. I, just in response to Torbert, uh, Jimmy was well aware of climate change. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the last um, actions of the administration was a, a, a major look at global futures. Uh, and had he been reelected, um, the U.S. Uh, focus on climate change and energy policy would have been uh, in a very different pattern than it is now. Um, but it, it does need to be said, I think, that from a main perspective, Jimmy had one lasting impact, and that is uh, he put forward and passed legislation that legalized craft breweries. And before that, uh, that was not, you, you couldn't get into the market, but uh, everybody who drinks a craft beer uh, anywhere in Maine can say thank you to Jimmy Carter. 
Thank you, David, for that. And thank you, Torbert, for calling in. We're going to move to Portland and Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Go ahead. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. Maybe the guests can touch upon um, Carter and uh, President Carter and his development. And um, this is beyond development when he served. I think he was a submariner. Uh, but uh, but just touch upon some aspects of him, you know, his military service and, um, you know, before he became a public citizen, so to speak. And I'll take my answer off the air. Uh, the answer off the air. Thank you. All right. Um Harold Patius. Because uh, I, I didn't know Jimmy Carter very well. I talked to him on the phone. I talked to him. I was, I was the chairman for all four years that he was there. We one time uh, had a Democratic fundraiser that we had. Uh, we had a kind of a hippie crowd in the Democrats' uh, leadership in those days. And so they put on a feed that was uh, something they thought was, you know, soul food or good food and and uh, Carter came up from Washington and attended it as president it, we charged five dollars a plate for the meal at a big crowd at the Stevens Avenue Armory and nobody um, the establishment types like me wouldn't even eat the food Carter ate the food he thought it was terrific he just he just acclimated himself to whatever environment he was in very very smart guy and the caller pointed out that, uh, you know, he had gone to the U.S. Naval Academy. He was an excellent student. He was an engineer. He was a nuclear engineer selected by Admiral uh, Hyman Rickover to uh, go and in, do nuclear submarine work as an engineer. Uh, this guy was highly intelligent and committed fellow. At some point, we get to uh, how it all ended that that presidency and Maine's participation in that it was a kind of a unique thing where we had the first in the nation in 1980, first in the nation caucus or primary before New Hampshire and before Iowa. And it had a huge amount of attention. The only time that one time that that happened in Maine and uh, Carter won, but then lost the nomination. Hmm. Andrew at that stage, uh, Jennifer, was his goal was to be chief of naval operations. And he was very serious about it. He, he did not establish goals for himself and then give up on them easily. Uh, but when his father died, he had to go back to Georgia uh, and deal with a number of family situations and take over the peanut farm. Um, and, and so that spelled the end to his aspirations to be um, the the chief of naval operations, but my guess is if his dad had lived a few years longer, Jimmy would have been on track. And if if uh, he had never gotten into politics, he may well have been the the chief of staff for the navy. Hmm. And Andrew Delevich, anything to add to that? Well, just to say, yeah, he graduated from the Naval Academy right after World War II and went into what was then a very new nuclear program in the submarine. Uh, as Harold mentioned, Admiral Rickover was his mentor, and he saw him as his mentor, I think, for you know most of his life. Um, and he was a senior officer, I think it was on the second nuclear submarine that was commissioned by the Navy. Um, and that was definitely a, a career track that he expected to follow. It was certainly important to how he saw 
um, even politics, right? Because he's a scientist uh, and saw things as uh, perhaps more black and white than were he was able to pull off during his political career. But I think it did have a lasting impact. Jamie, it thanks had, for your call. We're going to we're going to move on because uh, you have so many calls coming into Doug, who's calling from Mountville. Hi, Doug. Go ahead. Hi. Can you hear me? All right. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so. Back in the 70s, I was building a house, and um, the Carter administration announced that there would be a $2,000 tax credit for anybody putting a solar greenhouse uh, as an addition or to add to their house. And I took advantage of that back in 78, I want to think. And um, that greenhouse ended up providing a lot of food for a family of four for 20 years and a lot of heat, which we're still getting today. Um, so when people come to my house, they say, Jesus, what a nice room that is. And I always say, well, it's my Jimmy Carter greenhouse. And Thank you for story. that story. I love it, D Doug. Thanks for calling in. An email here from Peter. A major achievement of the Carter administration was the creation of a national coastal zone planning and management program, providing funding, guidelines, technical assistance, and coordination for both ocean and Great Lakes states. And in the mid-1970s, while serving as director of planning for the university's coastal zone laboratory, I was hired to prepare guidelines for state coastal management programs. At the direction of the White House, I interviewed the staff of Maine's coastal program as one of five or six states whose coastal management efforts would serve as examples for other coastal states trying to establish coastal zone programs. Peter, thanks for that. And, and really not the um, kind of thing that we read about when we read about the Carter presidency, but of course, prescient. Um, when we look at what coastal cities are facing today. We are talking about President Jimmy Carter and his legacy on Maine Calling. If you'd like to join the conversation, our phone number 1-800-399-3566. If you're quick, you can send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or find us on social media. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you're listening to Maine Calling. Today on the program, we are talking about the life and impact of former President Jimmy Carter. My guest today, David Hales, who's former president of the College of the Atlantic and a diplomat. He worked for the Carter campaign and administration. Andrew Levage, professor of government at Bowdoin College, and Harold Pacious, an attorney, a man who served in many roles in federal government and during the Carter presidency was head of the Democratic Party in Maine. Join our conversation, 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org. Tweet at Maine Calling or post to Facebook or on Instagram. But be quick. Lots of calls and emails coming in. We're going to go to Jennifer calling from Camden. Hi, Jennifer. Go ahead. Hi. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. I just want to tell a little story um, about my mom was a volunteer at Newington Children's Hospital down in Newington, Connecticut in the 70s. She was the longest volunteer there. And on one day, she announced to us that Jimmy Carter, President Carter, was going to come and visit the hospital. And all the board and the doctors assumed that he would spend the day with them. But he said, no, I want to spend the day with the volunteers. So my mom got to spend a day with Jimmy Carter doing normal things, meeting all the children. And it was it just showed what a down to earth president he was. 
Jennifer, thanks so much for calling in. And David Hales, I know so many people personally who have a Jimmy Carter story. Um, so what Jennifer is saying to you probably doesn't surprise you, does it? Not at all. He, uh, I don't think he ever left a, uh, a public campaign event without going through the kitchen uh, to say <laughs> hello to everybody, all the cooks, all of the uh, all of the servers. Um, it was it was very much for him about um, about uh, uh, relating to normal people. And he was very good at it. Um, his um, his intensity, which came through um, for those he was working with, um, uh, also showed up as a as a gentleness uh, and a, an ability to listen. Um, with folks that he met uh, either in the kitchens or the volunteers at the hospital or elsewhere. He really, really deeply believed um, that uh, that all of those lives were important and that they ought to be rewarded and recognized. It was it was very much a part and still is a part, uh, I suspect, of, of his life and his life patterns. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much uh, for your call. I'm going to go to an email here. This is from Robert. Proud to say my first time voting was for President Carter in 1980. Unfortunately, we know the result. However, I view President Carter as one of our very best presidents of all time. And needless to say, after he left office, his actions and advocacy speak for themselves. If only we could have another period of time with the president like him. Andrew Rudolevich, when you hear somebody say that, that he was one of the very best presidents, uh, what's your reaction? <laughs> Well, uh, it's complicated, right? Because all presidents have some achievements and some uh, uh, things you can uh, criticize them for. I mean, I, I, like I said, this is a complicated policy time. I mean, in some ways, you know, reminiscent uh, headlines, you know, energy prices high, uh, inflation very high, actually much higher than today. Uh, by the time President Carter left office, it was 14% in 1980, which means that interest rates rose. We're complaining now about that happening, but uh, keep in mind, interest rates were 19.8%. Uh, that was the federal funds rate. So if you wanted to buy, uh, you know, borrow money to buy a house, you were paying over 20% interest uh, in 1980-81. Um, very different world in that sense. Um, you know, you have the Russians invading a neighbor uh, and President Carter trying to deal with that. You, uh, you know, he responded with a grain embargo and a boycott of the 1980 Olympics, you'll remember. Um, and of course, then you have the, uh, the uh, Iranian revolution and the uh, takeover of the U.S. embassy and the 444-day hostage crisis that ultimately does a lot to, to whittle away at his uh, overall popularity towards the end of his term. Um, so, yeah, he's got a huge economic crisis, stagflation, right? He's got foreign policy difficulties uh, to manage. Um, a number of callers uh, have mentioned energy, right, which, of course, is a big focus uh, of his administration, two big policy packages. Uh, and ultimately, though, he talks uh, instead of giving a fifth national speech on energy in 1979, he decides to give a talk about the uh, crisis of confidence, as he put it, that the American people were facing. Um, this became known as the malaise speech. And people saw it as sort of running down America. This is actually a big part of Ronald Reagan's campaign against him in 1980. Reagan, very self-confident, actually the originator of the Make America Great Again slogan uh, in 1980, uh, running really against this notion that uh, Nixon, uh, Nixon, sorry, Carter, um, the anti-Nixon, is, uh, you know, 
just not uh, displaying the strong leadership, the optimistic can-do American spirit that people need uh, to move forward in this time of crisis. So, you know, the policy achievements are mixed. Uh, there's been a little bit of resurgence of people writing uh, and trying to reevaluate his presidential career. Uh, but certainly in 1980, he was facing a very uphill battle for re-election. We'll go to Peter calling from Freiburg. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Uh, hi, Jennifer. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I just wanted to um, um, reiterate this um, uh, moral um, uh, man who was our president and, uh, you know, the respect that um, is due him. In uh, the early 1950s in Bermuda, as a junior as a junior officer, a lieutenant on, on the submarine he was on, uh, the crew was invited to a party by the British, but they only invited the white members of the crew. And he organized the crew to um, uh, forego the uh, party invitation because blacks weren't invited. And uh, this was 1952. And also in that time frame, he was involved in, um, I believe, um, uh, taking – well, take, he, he took uh, part in an accident at a Canadian um, um, reactor at the Chalk River uh, nuclear facility. It was a, some sort of a meltdown type situation. And he was involved in the, uh, uh, the rectification, the solving of that, if you will. He went into this containment structure where they could only spend 90 seconds at a time. And, um, you know, the, the courage of the man is impressive. But I also wanted to say that uh, I correspond with a cousin in Scotland, and um, recently we've been talking about Jimmy Carter, and he told me that his mother-in-law and sister-in-law a number of years back had met Jimmy Carter on a flight from London to Glasgow, and um, apparently they, they, he chatted them up, they chatted him up. He said they're still talking about it as far as, you know, what a real human being this man was, and... Um, that, that's really all I have to say is, I mean, you know, we need, especially in this day and age, we need more like him to be sure. And uh, I'm a veteran. I think what he did in the early 50s with the sailors on board his ship was a real sign of leadership. And um, I think we have to respect that. So thank, I just thank you so point. much, Peter, for calling in and sharing that. Um, I'm going to move up to Bangor and Larry. Hi, Larry. Go ahead. <laughs> Hi. Um, as to inflation, the Fed mostly controls inflation, as did the Vietnam War, which Nixon kept extending. Thus, Carter was stuck with, with that problem. Uh, number two, uh, Reagan undermined the negotiations with the Iranians as to the hostages, just as Nixon undermined Johnson in his negotiations. And lastly, as a STEM person, I very, very much miss and wish he had fulfilled eight years. Um, Carter, excuse me, yeah, yeah, he understood the complexities of physics and mathematics and whatnot, understood that global warming was going to be a major problem. If you remember, Reagan, and he took office, took the, the solar panels off of the White House an extraordinarily dumb thing to do. That's right. And those solar panels are now at Unity College here in Maine. And David Hales, I know this is something really important that you wanted to talk about is um, Carter, not only his commitment, his knowledge of global warming, but also his commitment to the environment and to conservation. He 
probably i i think there's some competition uh from theodore roosevelt but he probably was the greatest conservation president that we ever had uh and during his term we more than doubled the size of the national park service more than doubled the size of uh, the national uh, refuge system um, uh, tripled the size of the wild and scenic rivers uh, mileage uh, uh, more than doubled the size of the uh, of the national uh, trail system uh, the first delegation that went into China after uh, he negotiated the real opening of relationships with China um, was a delegation headed by Doug Castle. Uh, I was on that delegation, uh, and the and it and it opened the discussions uh, early on with China. That was our first discussion with them about uh, global warming. It was a it was a deep commitment, as as the rest of his life um, has shown. Uh, it it was a commitment that existed long before that. The the uh, the the designation of the Chattahoochee River in Georgia uh, was um, uh, largely because of Jimmy's willingness to protect the corridor um, for that river uh, and make sure that it remained wild and scenic. So there there are multiple stories. I mean, you could you could go on forever about uh, his achievements in this regard. Um, but it, it to me, it's part of a a consistent theme that runs through um through jimmy's life um he uh, he he saw uh opportunities as responsibilities uh and and it's captured in the the title of his his campaign biography why not the best um a number of people saw that as a, a kind of egotistical statement that's not what he was saying at all what he what he was reflecting on was um, that every day he did, and I suspect still does, uh, ask himself, did you do your best today? Did you do your best on that issue? Did you do your best in that uh, situation? And then the question that he asks himself constantly is, why not your best? Why didn't you do your best? Uh, and it's a question that all of us would benefit from asking ourselves more frequently. Go ahead. Heidi is calling from Liberty. Yes, can you hear me? Yep. Um, I had my very first job was a Jimmy Carter provided job through the CETA program. We built overhead projector cabinets and veneer vices for the Los Angeles, the Los Angeles City School District. Um, it was in 1977. I made $2.36 an hour. <laughs> Heidi, thank you. And um, we have another, uh, an email from Peter. Jimmy Carter was the last president who supported the New Deal. In fact, he supported the CETA program, which helped many successful small businesses get started, especially here in Maine. So I appreciate that. Let's see, we'll go to Sandy calling from Rockland. Hi, Sandy, go ahead. How are you this morning? Great. If you could be quick, that'd be great. We're near the end of the show. Okay. In about 1989, I was stationed on the White Lupine, the buoy tender out of Rockland. Uh, and one spring Saturday afternoon when we were in port, a Secret Service agent came on board and he said, uh, President Carter would like to meet the crew. Um, evidently, he was waiting for a ride from the station to go out to the island to see, I guess it was his former attorney general. But... Um, he came on board, met the crew, um, asked what our jobs were, thanked us for doing what we did. Very down to earth. 
You know, it just it really impressed me that he was that down to earth. Sandy, thank you for so, calling and sharing that memory. Harold Pacious, you've met a lot of politicians in your day. Uh, Jimmy Carter sounds like he was especially talented at that personal connection. Yeah, but if it put it in perspective, and I agree with Andrew, it's complicated. Look, <laughs> I ran. I, I think it's wonderful you're praising this man. He's a good man. And uh, I ran for Congress in 1980. I'd planned for two years to run for Congress against an incumbent. I did. I was committed to it. But it was not a very good year for Democrats. It was a very bad year. And uh, and I know I I know all about it. I am an expert on that. And, you're, uh, you're an expert on so, how bad 1980 was. Well, that's right. And we and and the fact is, you know, things happen in presidencies, and mm. a lot of things happened to Jimmy Carter that were, you know, just bad fortune. But uh, he was very unpopular in 1980, and uh, many of us. Uh, I probably would have gone down if I ran on a ticket with the most popular Democrat in the country, I probably would have lost. Uh, I acknowledge that, but it didn't help that Carter was at the top of the ticket. It was not a good year for Democrats. So uh, I think we want to talk about positive things. I understand that. And, uh, and he was a very decent, brilliant man uh, who was the, as Andrew pointed out, the antidote to Nixon. And he would be the antidote. He's the opposite, as a leader, the opposite of Donald Trump. Jimmy Carter said at the beginning of his campaign, I will not tell a lie. Boy, is that different than what happens today. He said, I will not tell a And I don't believe the guy ever did tell a lie as president. And I'm going to end with an email here from Susan. President Carter and his family are still contributing to our country by making it public. He has entered hospice care. They have raised the profile of this important service. Many people don't know about hospice, but because of him, many people more, more people do now. I want to thank all of you for joining us. The voice you just heard, Harold Pacious, who served in so many roles, but during Carter's presidency, head of the Democratic Party in Maine, Andrew Rodelevich from Bowdoin College, and David Hales, former president of College of the Atlantic, who started his career by working for the Carter campaign. Today's sound engineer, Keiji Akimaladun. Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk about news from the legislature as well as the month in review. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.